I certainly appreciate this opportunity. It's it's uh, good to be able to share this and to visit with you all from the uh, comfort of my home in northeastern Wisconsin. So yeah, we've been doing uh, cover crops and 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 trying to incorporate cover crops on our dairy for a lot of years um, with a lot of trial and error. And uh, I'd like to spend quite a bit of time today on, on just how we've approached that um, and some of the changes that we've made in incorporating uh, cover crops. And I think the, the real important part of that is just rethinking our crop rotations. And that's allowed us to, and to have a lot higher degree of success and a lot more consistent success with the cover crops that we've used. And we think that there's some pretty big efficiencies that can be gained, uh, both in, in ration cost and overall farm performance, along with the soil health benefits that we know that, that come along with cover crops. So um, my dairy, uh, it's a family farm. The original homestead there was settled by Olson's in the, in the 1800s, and I'm the seventh generation work on there and we have uh, I have six boys coming on so hopefully we have an eighth here someday and, and when it comes to uh, when it comes to the farm you know there's 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 of course the soil aspect that's something that we pass on um, and so we want to be um, we want to be building the, the yield potential and the, the soil health uh, the fertility of that ground but we also have to be profitable so we don't go broke. Um, and so we have a farm to pass on and, and, and a system that, that can be um, carried on to another generation. And so when I look at, at, at cover crops and when I look at, at our forage systems, they have to do two things for us. They have to uh, not only you know, build soil and, and we can make these kind of long-term investments in soil improvements, both in, in uh, water infiltration and organic matter and tilt, but they also have to be able to generate income in the short term because we need to continue to be able to cash flow and, and be profitable and we have animals to feed and milk to produce. And so that's where, how I've approached it, kind of on, um, on those two aspects. And uh, and sometimes, you know, not all of our cover crop systems in the past have accomplished both those things. And so we'll talk about that some. Um, so we're milking, uh, currently we're milking about 350 cows on two locations. We have the home dairy. That's a lot more of a grazing-based um, crossbred animals uh, and then we have the new dairy, which uh, we do still uh, rotationally graze a little bit. Uh, on the lactating cows, we do all our heifers and dry cows there. But that farm is set up uh, more as a research uh, farm. It's a farm where we do uh, more projects. Um, there's you know, the, the capability of having different pens of animals. There's registered Holsteins and Jerseys and some crossbreds there. And we do a lot of research on our farm. And the main reason for that is this kind of other business that I have and that I do um, I do forage consulting with with uh, farms, dairies all over the country. Um, and right now I'm at 24 states and just kind of building forage systems, helping with uh, consulting work. And, and this act, picture is actually um, one of the, one of our research pots at our home dairy. So in that, uh, 
plot there. That's all perennial legume and grasses uh, in in this plot. But we do, you know, thousands of things every year um, between our farms on different projects. So, like that grid there is about I think four hundred different. Uh, diverse mixes of uh, perennial grasses and legumes. And if you look uh, running up north and south or up and down on the screen, those are all legumes. So um, every 10 foot is another uh, a different legume, whether it's clover or alfalfas. Um, I think there might even be a trefoil there. And then running east and west across them is different perennial grasses. And uh, the kind of the fun thing about that is, um, is you can walk down the perimeters, which are, um, which are monocultures, and you can say, hey, I like this grass uh, variety. And then you can walk crossways and see how it interacts with, you know, 20 different uh, legume species. Or vice versa, you can, you can walk along the one side here and see all uh, like alfalfas and clovers and monocultures. And then you can walk across and see how it interacts with different grass species. And, and so when I do research, I'm a lot more interested in kind of systems approaches, problem solving and toward innovation. And not so much, uh, not so much into varietal things, although, what we've learned is that certain varieties of things uh, and species interact uh, better than others. And so we've taken this approach also when we're doing research on our farm uh, with uh, annuals and with cover crops and looking at, at uh, adding different variables to these kind of cocktail mixes that we, that we put in. And, and I'll talk about that some more. But um, but research is a, a very uh, very enjoyable thing that we'll, we do in our farm and and even in our main cropping practices. You know, we'll take um, we'll take and you know double rates or or cut rates or or do strip leaf strips. And uh, the neighbors probably look at our fields and think we're crazy, but there's there's some method to the madness. We're always trying to to learn things because I think you know there's there's piles of data out there and there's a lot of good work that's been done. But when it comes down to it, there's nothing like real world um, research that's done on your farm in in kind of the same um, in the same management system that, that you're working. So. Um, so, you know, when I look at forages at our, our farm, um, I have, I have some, some goals and things that I think that we need to be thinking about. And I'm, I'm guessing this isn't unique. Like every, uh, every livestock producer um, in the country is probably looking at, at these similar, similar things. And especially uh, this year, as grain prices are, are rising uh, pretty dramatically, our ration input costs are going to be a real challenge. And, you know, right now I'm working with farms everywhere from like California to New York and, and uh, Georgia to Washington um, state. And so, you know, there's a, a really diverse mix of, of geographical areas, but also uh, weather and water um, 
and nutrient management challenges. But when it comes down to it, fundamentally, um, we all have very similar um, needs when it, because a cow is a cow, you know? And so, um, so my, my kind of a list of some of my goals uh, would be, of course, lowering ration cost. And that, um, that's going to be a, a, a thing moving forward. Uh, so we do that two ways. Um, you can lower ration cost both by, um, of course, putting lower cost inputs into that ration, so lowering the price per pound of the ration. But we can also look at efficiencies and, and how do you get more out of every pound that you're feeding? And so, you know, how can we improve performance per pound of, of feed fed to the cows as well? Or maybe even reducing intakes and, and making less manure. Or what's the um, so there's a number of different ways to approach ration cost. Um, of course, we all want to, you know, increase yields. So we have this, you know, large fixed cost when it comes into land, both in um, whether it's our how many trips across the field and harvesting. Of course, the land values. There's all these fixed costs, and so the main variable in our cost per pound harvested what our yields are. And I think that um, as animals become more concentrated in certain areas of the country, like in my part of this country where I live in Northeastern Wisconsin, uh, we have a, a very large concentration of, of CAFOs and, and in some you know, environmentally sensitive land and in, in close proximity to large bodies of water like Lake Michigan. And so, you know, we're very conscious about the ability to, to harvest uh, crops and to, to get enough off of this to cycle nutrients and, and support our herd. Um, also, the big challenge that we have is, is creating manure application windows. And, uh, you know, um, in 2019, we had an incredibly wet year in the upper Midwest. And... Uh, and it was tough. It, it really was. We had, um, you know, you couldn't get manure out when you wanted to, and and things, um, you know, farmers were shifting manure around from one manure pit to the neighbors, and and it just got to be incredibly expensive. And so, something that we're trying to accomplish on our farm is is to create more application windows in the growing season, and that allows us to turn that manure into an asset versus a liability. Um, and so I want I want crops that can handle that, and and, um, and annuals are a good way to do that. Uh, we, of course, we would like to reduce insect and, and weed pressure, especially with some of the the herbicide resistant weeds that are coming in. Um, you know, uh, I know it's kind of a cliche, but we of course we want to build soil health, and whatever that means to you. For me, it means water infiltration um, and water holding capacity. Um, largely, those are our two biggest challenges. We either tend to be pretty wet or trending towards dry and, and not a lot of room in the middle. Uh, we'd like to reduce tillage, maybe eliminate it, um, but we're not quite there yet, but we definitely want to reduce tillage uh, in our cropping uh, systems. Um, you know, in long term, I'd like to reduce fertilizer expenses, you know, keep that nutrient cycling um, and you know, nitrate concerns, I think, are going to be the next big thing for us in, in Wisconsin, um, where phosphorus has been the driver of much of our 
uh, are challenges, I think um, nitrates are going to be a thing in the future as well. So, to, to you know, with all those challenges, I think I think you know probably the 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 biggest issue or the 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 way we can tackle this is to really rethink the normal the things that we've been doing and so often in farming or whatever you have this historical um uh, a pressure like hey we've always done it this way we always grew the same crops we always did this and it doesn't mean we haven't done some improvements um but most of the time it's like well it's this new variety of the same species or it's this new trait that came out in a corn or, or whatever it is um but to I think the challenges that we're facing as a as an industry, we need more big picture moves, and that's what we've, we've done on our farm. And you know, and a lot of this started with this whole you know cover crop conundrum, I'll call it, and that and it's especially true in in maybe the northern part of the country where we just struggle. We don't have enough growing season to consistently plant. Um, at least diverse cover crops after corn or soybeans uh, in our cropping systems. Um, it just gets late in the fall. By the time you get them out there, they don't fully establish. They're not as productive. Um, and we're not gaining the full benefit. So we've tried things like interceding into corn um, at, at different stages. Uh, and and we've, you know, we've we've broadcasted, we've drilled, we've incorporated, we've tried um, a lot of different ways to try to get cover crops in, but with really hit and miss success. I mean, everybody likes to show the pictures like the ones on the screen where, where you have the success, but for every success we've had with this, I would say, you know, we had one or two or three failures. And and so we always, you know, we've been working with this cover crop thing for 10 or 15 years, but, um, but yeah, uh, always hard to get excited about it because because um, we just don't have we have too variable of weather and we don't have a long enough growing season to do it consistently. And so what I started looking at was was actually just rethinking our crop rotations altogether. What we were typically doing was about four years corn, four years alfalfa, and then coming back in with corn. And there was, we were trying to drop some cover crops in between the corn, um, you know, rye or triticale. Um, you know, we did some different incorporations of stuff, but not really successful. And then we got into that alfalfa, you know, where you had this big yield drag in our seeding year. Um, in a couple pretty good years, and then the yields start falling off. Um, but lately, we haven't even had those couple good years. We've had a lot of uh, a lot of winter kill, um, compaction issues through those wet years, and alfalfa really doesn't like surface applied manure very well. So we weren't able to move much manure out in the summer. So that put a lot of pressure on applying it either early spring before corn or late in the fall after corn. And too often, um, we had a lot of. Uh, a, you know, poor weather conditions or poor soil conditions at that time of year. And so I got thinking, you know, what happens if we eliminate the alfalfa? You know, what happens if we eliminate the perennial in this rotation? And instead, drop an annual crop in the middle between these corn crops. 
And so that's what we've done. We've largely eliminated our perennials on most of our acres. We still have some um, on some really poorly drained ground where we have perennial grass clover stands. But um, on most of our cropping acres, we've eliminated uh, the alfalfa and we've gone to a corn hover crop cocktail mix back into corn. And so if you look at this slide, that, that red line that runs across the middle, that's, that's the line of the previous slide um, where our, our average annual yields are. And, and you might say, well, your area is different, your farm is different, whatever. But, um, well, maybe I'll back up to it a little bit. So over time, um, corn yields come down. When you do corn on corn on corn, corn yields come down. And they, they'll flatline at some point. But as a whole, um, average yields on, on, corn, uh, on corn is about 15% less than first-year corn in our part of the country. Now, like, like I said, you might have some amazing soil and you have excess of manure and, and maybe your, your experience is different than that. But as a whole, corn yields come down. It's, just, it, it's a harder, more expensive crop to grow, primarily because of less yields, but also because of some less input or more inputs. Um, and so beauty of this new rotation is that I can turn all the corn on my farm into first year corn. And first year corn is the most productive, lowest crop, cost crop I grow per ton of feed on my farm. And it's a, a staple in my diets, lactating cow diets. And by eliminating the perennial, I was able to turn all my corn into first-year corn. And so what our typical cropping rotation looks like is, is corn followed by a winter small grain. Generally, that's going to be winter triticale. Um, if it gets too late, like gets into October, I'll switch to cereal rye. If it gets early enough, I'll actually put other stuff in with the triticale, like annual ryegrass and red corn. Um, so for us, that would be more like Labor Day. So um, it really depends on our harvest timing in the fall, what that out there and what we grow. But then we'll take that off for forage the following spring, and we'll follow it with a full season, uh, an annual cover crop. And generally, I'm using like cocktail mixes, um, and I'll talk about that a little more. But sometimes uh, we're using like full season photoperiod sensitive sorghum sand or, or other crops as well um, in that. But between those two crops, between the triticale and the annual crop, my yields are very similar to what my second year corn yields. And then in year three, we come right back and we're into first year corn again. And we're above the line. We're ahead of yields at that point. Year four, we're back into the cover crops. And look at year five. In year five, instead of my first year alfalfa new seeding yields, <laughs> I'm at first year corn yields. So what happens is over an eight-year rotation, you know, we're getting about a 30 to 40% yield increase per acre on our farm. And it actually cost us less to grow that crop versus the other rotation. And I'll get into a few of those expenses uh, as well. So these are just some pictures of some of the crops we'll, we'll grow. Um, probably the most, our staple is uh, this Yield Max cocktail mix on the right. Um, that's a BMR sorghum sedan Italian ryegrass uh, based mix that only works in the upper Midwest. If you get south of Wisconsin, uh, 
it's too hot. The ryegrass will die in the summer. But up where we are, uh, this works really well. And so like with the yield max, what we're doing is we're planting it there um, around the end of May, where we've taken that triticale crop off. Uh, we apply manure and then we uh, plant it. And then and what we're doing with a cool season crop, like the Italian ryegrass, and merging that with a warm season crop, like the BMR sorghum sedan, and then we have some legumes in there as well. But we have these two different growth curves where the Italian ryegrass grows well in June, then really slows down July, August, and then starts picking back up and grows in into November, really. Um, when we will harvest that three to four times, and the first two or three cuttings are going to be largely Italian uh, sorghum sedan, but by fall, the Italian ryegrass has become more dominant and it really takes off. Um, and so we're, we're kind of merging those two things. Uh, the Italian ryegrass also helps us with, with ash content. It gives us some soil cover. It gives us some diversity and, and um, that the straight sorghum sedan doesn't. Um, but like I said, it doesn't. The thing with cocktail mixes is they look different every acre, every year, every farm. And so when we're planting things together that like very different things, um, certain years are going to favor one or the other. So like in 19, where we had really cool, wet, excessive wet year, the sorghum sedan didn't do very well. It was yellow and kind of stunted. And But the Italian ryegrass, you know, really came on and became dominant. Now, last year, we we were trending towards a drought. It was hotter than normal. It was drier than normal. And we didn't have that much Italian ryegrass, especially not until later in the fall. Um, so it looked very different. But in the end, uh, we had feed to feed the cows, and, and the quality of that feed was really good. Just some more pictures. Uh, these are... Um, some of these are from mine, some are from another farm bias that's doing the same thing. Um, uh, putting uh, manure on uh, with uh, drag lines and uh, dribble bars. Uh, we're able to put on about 8,000 gallons of liquid manure per cutting um, in this, with this system. And you can see how it looks like sorghum sedan uh, from the road or before you cut it. And when you get done cutting it, could see we still got all that green ground cover and that's from the Italian ryegrass down underneath it. and and the Italian ryegrass loves manure and so it really comes on for us and, and does well so I think I'll, I'll just go through some of the the different classes of um, of annuals that we're using in our cover crop mixes so um, I guess the first thing would be the warm season grass species. And of course, corn is warm season grass, so I'm not including that here. Um, what you're looking at in the pictures is a photo period sensitive sorghum sedan. And that would be a single cut type material. Uh, we use that in our heifer and dry cow diets. Uh, and uh, sometimes we'll plant other things with it, but generally uh, they get shaded out over time because it's a huge crop. Um, the beauty of the photoperiod sensitive is it doesn't go reproductive until late in the fall. And so you can plant it in, uh, in June and it just stays vegetative and builds dry matter all summer long. And then in like September, we'll come in and windrow it and, and chop it. And we'll get you know, 15 to 20 tons an acre of, of 
really good digestible fiber source that works good in our dry cow and, and heifer diets. Um, so, uh, so you can also use forage sorghum that way. Uh, forage sorghum is, uh, you know, most guys would use it a little more like a corn, um, but uh, lower seeding rate, a little larger stem. You can direct chop it if you want with like a Kemper head, um, but forage sorghum works. Um, of course, sedan grass is, is more of a, a fine stemmed warm season grass. I don't use much sedan grass here. I just, I feel like I get a lot better yield and a little more consistency with the sorghum sedan hybrids. But sedan grass is excellent quality feed and, and it's uh, certainly could be in the, in part of a, a, a program. Um, but we're using a lot of sorghum sedan hybrids. Uh, we're not using photoperiod sensitive in our multi-cut. So we're using different varieties in the multi-cut cocktails than we are in the single cut type um, system. So you want to make sure you get the right varieties <laughs> for the right system because otherwise they just don't work. And even when we're putting these diverse mixes together, uh, we figure out that there's a lot of differences in how they interact with each other and, and which ones work note um kind of the other real breakthrough and i'm using this on recommending on some of my farms especially in the south um so southern midwest uh really the whole way up the coast from you know washington down to to california and across the south we're using a lot of bmr pearl millet right now and uh, pearl millet is extremely high quality um the BMR pearl millet, it's extremely high quality. It's aphid, uh, sugarcane aphid resistant, and uh, and it works great in a multi-cut type situation. Um, and so we're putting quite a bit of BMR millet into to systems farther south. It loves heat, and in Wisconsin, we just don't get enough heat to consistently be as productive as I'd like. Even though the quality is great, uh, we haven't used as much millet up here just because of the heat factor in our part of the country. Um, probably the last one is, is TEF. Uh, we're not using a lot of TEF here. Uh, the only, I grow some of it for dry hay for like calves. It makes beautiful dry hay, but it's, uh, it's not as productive as the other uh, annuals. And once again, it, it takes a lot of heat to do well. So in our system, we don't use a horrible lot of TEF here, except for uh, dry hay options for like calf hay. The other annuals are really tough to make dry, and especially where we are up next to Lake Michigan, we have a lot of humidity here. It just doesn't seem to, to work very well other than TEF. Uh, cool season grass species, uh, you know, focusing primarily on annuals. Uh, we're using Italian ryegrasses for spring planted stuff. Um, and then we're using uh, annual ryegrasses, some winter hardy ones in the fall, like, and we'll combine them with a winter small grain like triticale um, for some added quality and diversity in those mixes. But we use Italians in the spring. The, the beauty of an Italian is it doesn't go reproductive until it vernalizes or until it freezes. And so when you can plant them in April, and uh, they'll stay vegetative the whole summer. They don't go, they don't head out. Beautiful, high-quality uh, feed, and the and the root systems on rye grasses, both Italians and annuals, uh, are just great for soil structure and, and health. So I really like to put them in to our cropping mixes where we can. 
Um, we also are using some festololium uh, primarily in, in places where we want to get two hues out of a crop. And so sometimes, um, for whatever reason, instead of that one year, like a two year system. And there I'll use a combination of festololium and try to get more of a two year uh, crop. Festololium is a is like a hybrid between a ryegrass and a mesquite, and so um, they get a little more winter hardiness, a little more longevity to them. But you get a lot of that stair. Uh, legumes. Uh, when I talk alternative legumes, basically it's anything that isn't alfalfa. The alfalfa dominates the the legume, you know, portion of the country um, but you know we're using a combination of a, a lot of different legumes depending what our goals are you know how how long do we want them how are we going to harvest them um, what kind of animal groups are we feeding them to uh, so uh, the picture um, of the clover there that's you know that's a combination of red clover and the dino clover um, but we'll use a lot of Versim clover, uh, carry vetch uh, in combination with the ryegrass and, and sorghum sedan, and and uh, those make excellent quality forages and, and give us a legume component to our cocktails. So, like I said, I, I, I'm excited about those other forages and how they feed and things, and I can grow them at a lower cross point per pound than I can alfalfa. But the other thing that it does in these rotations is it lowers our cost per ton of corn silage pretty dramatically. You know, on our farm, our first year corn averages maybe 24 tons of silage. But our other years, you know, of that second through fifth year or whatever, if you're doing corn on corn, are closer to 20 tons. So when we, on this first year corn, we, you know, we're able to use less trades, so our seed costs are less, uh, we have less fertilizer fertilizer needs because we're having more consistent um, nitrogen credits. Uh, we're, you know, we're able to do a lot more no-tilling. So our planting and tillage costs are less. Our herbicide programs get really simple. Um, you still have that fixed land cost and the harvest costs are, are largely fixed as well. Um, but, but what it allows us to do is drop our cost per ton of corn silage by like 10 bucks a ton or, or $30 a ton dry matter. And that makes a difference. So we're talking, um, you know, we feed a lot of corn silage, maybe 20 pounds of corn silage on a dry matter basis per cow per day. And then if we replace another 10 pounds of like alfalfa that we're feeding with maybe 10 pounds of a, of a cover crop um, forage, like a cocktail, um, we start talking 50, 60, 70 cents per cow per day savings just in the forage cost. On a thousand cows, that would be about a quarter million dollars a year in forage cost. And so, it, you know, it starts really making sense. And this, and this rotation allows us to grow so much more digestible fiber per acre. Almost all of those cover crops that I just talked about, all those annuals, excel at at fiber digestibility. And, and so not only do they have a larger fiber pool or more NDF or neutral detergent fiber, the digestibility of that fiber is really, really good, especially if we're using BMRs and really improved varieties. And so 
um, these numbers here that I'm, I'm talking about on the slide um, are using those same yield data that I was showing on the previous slides uh, with those two different cropping scenarios. And then uh, assuming that my alfalfa is 36 NDF with a 45 digestibility, and my annuals are about 52% uh, fiber with a 65% digestibility. You combine those two things, both the added yield and the higher quality, we're looking at basically doubling the amount of digestible fiber we have per acre per year. And digestible fiber is the hardest thing to bring into a diet. You know, you can bring starch into a diet if you need to through shell corn or something. You can bring protein into the diet if you need to. But digestible fiber is tough. I mean, there's some byproduct sources like beet pulp or soy hulls or, or maybe gluten. Um, the, the feed efficiency numbers on those diets aren't very good. Um, the cost is going up. Sometimes they're not very consistent. So the more digestible fiber I can grow on my farm and, and eliminate some of those other um, sources, uh, not only am I turning my, my farm's uh, nutrients into an asset and cutting down on my purchase feed needs, I'm also able to uh, really um, improve ration efficiency. My harvest costs actually go down. I mean, most of the most harvest costs are a fixed cost per acre. Um, it just costs money to run across an acre. So the vast majority is how much yield you're harvesting per cutting. Um, and so my cost per harvest costs go down by almost a quarter um, this new rotation. My phosphorus rates are are quite a bit better. And you know, you might some farms that might not be a positive, but in for most farms that have livestock and a lot of livestock concentration, this is a really good thing, and it means we can apply more manure on the acres that we that we have uh, around the farm and allow us to turn that into feed. That going. So I'd like to talk just a little bit about harvest management, and because I think you know when we get, we all know how to grow alfalfa, and we know how to harvest it, we know how to do. Or, but some of these alternative forages, it's easy to mess them up and not get the management right. Um, so when we're cutting uh, cool season grasses, I like to keep at least three to four inches of residue. That, that would be Italian ryegrass, um, sorghum, um, you know, really any sort of um, cool season grasses, even perennials like meadow fescue, they should be cut high if you want regrowth. Much of the energy is stored above ground in that area. And that's gonna drastically uh, cut down on your regrowth if you cut into that. Um, warm seasons like, like BMR sorghum sedan or millet uh, should kind of have a target level of about 10% of the cutting height um, or 10% of their height should be your cutting height. So, you know, if it's four feet high, you should be cutting at about five inches uh, to get regrowth. and that's because you need these growth nodes. There's these internodal, these growth nodes to get regrowth. And, uh, and as the plant stretches, as it grows up, those growth nodes get farther apart. Now there's some rachitic dwarf varieties that they're more compressed and things. But just a really good rule of thumb is 10% of the height. So the taller that plant is, the higher you need cutting to get regrowth. Really easy to cut into that and, and it'll, it'll drastically reduce the other thing is, is you 
really want to lay it wide. Get it wide as possible, you know, preferably 80% of cutter bar width. Um, if you can't lay it out, you're probably going to need to cut it. So we're talking a lot of material that's pretty wet. And so get it laid wide. Um, and conditioners are really not necessary, but um, you know, sometimes on really long material like sorghum sedan, uh, like flail ones will help break it up and make it a little easier to handle, but it's definitely not, not necessary. So the next step after you got it down is merging. And uh, I work primarily with large dairies, so everybody, we're running large equipment, we're merging, and uh, this is probably the biggest point of, of uh, frustration that farms have, especially with things like, like sorghum sedan or triticale if it gets big. And when I say big, I'm going to say probably anything taller than 48 inches. Um, you should seriously think about cutting that um, at an angle. Uh, and the reason for that is that, you know, when you're hitting this material, you look at a merger and uh, and you have this this belt that's running crossways generally and you got this pickup and you're hitting that long material and it's having to make a 90 degree bend onto that belt and shoot out the side and when it gets really long it doesn't want to do that so it starts piling up on the belt it makes these clumps it, it, and your merger guy isn't happy the chopper guy really isn't happy when he has to deal with those if you can cut your field at like a 45 degree angle and then merge it straight back into straight windrows crop is at a 45 degree angle when you hit it it's already heading that direction and it takes you can handle a lot larger material and you take care of a lot of those problems I mean, you could theoretically you could also merge it at a 45 and cut it straight but then you're gonna have to be chopping uh you've got choppers and trucks taking these really sharp corners and stuff it's way easier to have your cutter guy cut it on angle don't create a problem and then just Okay, for chopping, um, most of these crops, when we're talking warm season grasses, cool season grasses, small grains, all these kind of things, uh, we want moistures to be a little wetter than you would with like alfalfa. Um, so 60 to 70%. And, and they're pretty forgiving. You can actually go higher than 70% moisture on most of them. But if you're going to go higher than, than 70, um, you're going to want to cut them a little longer so you don't have leaching. Uh, and uh, and you're going to want to use a lactic acid type inoculant uh, just to really protect you from uh, butyric acid production. The other real key to these, especially on wetter forages, is getting them made um, getting them made fast. And that comes back to this laying out wide, drying it fast. And the reason for that is we lose about 25% of the sugar every 24 hours a crop lays. And I don't care if that's alfalfa, grass, um, whatever. About 25% of our sugars just burn off and dissipate through lengthy. So, um, so generally speaking, when I see poor fermentations, it's because the guys left the stuff lay too long. Um, you know, so you could start out at 10% sugar and a day later it's at eight or so. But, you know, three, four days later, the sugars are largely used up. And at some point, you don't have enough sugar to get an adequate fermentation. And that's when you start getting these, you know, high butyric acid levels. 
So just get it done fast. Let me, and I would, I would err on the side of wetter and sooner versus later and drier. Uh, last, uh, last slide is uh, prussic acid and nitrates. Anytime we start talking about sorghum sedan or, or sorghums, uh, these two things come up. And I just thought we'd, um, I'd like to talk about them a little bit. Um, so nitrates on, on dairy farms, you know, rarely show up. Uh, if manure is your primary uh, nitrogen source. I, I mean, I have some dairies like in Arizona that struggle with this a bit, um, but they're using, you know, piles of nitrogen, uh, you know, nutrients. Um, but generally speaking, we have a carbon component to manure, um, and that helps really keep down our nitrate nitrogen levels. But if commercial fertilizer is your primary source, if you get into some sort of drought-type situation, nitrates could be a but fermentation largely dissipates them. So just wait a while to feed it. It'll usually go away. Uh, prussic acid is, is frost-induced. So um, late in the fall, when you get that frost uh, on sorghum sedan or sorghum sedan grass, any of those, uh, prussic acid is an issue. But it's only an issue for maybe 7 to 14 days after frost. And that doesn't mean you can't harvest it. It just means you can't feed it. So if you want to go ahead and harvest it the next day, go for it. Just don't feed it fresh, you know, or even if you want to come back and graze it um, or, or green chop it or whatever, you can do that, but just don't feed it um, not for 7 to 14 days after that frost. 